we got a phone call from England. There was fire behind your eyes. You could see it. Repented on my set. Public humiliation. Are you ready for more? This is Colton, Connecticut. There was one year of my life that was lived with no cold. My only memory of being a baby was joy. Just this one vivid memory in the house, the old decor, and just being a happy baby. When I was 18 months old, our family had come into contact with some people from an English ministry. So my parents, John Monahan, Kevin Hamill, and a small group of people were running Dayspring Church in Jewett City. It was a small group of nice people. My grandmother went to the church. And from what my dad told me, the English group came over and was kind of traveling through New England stopped at our church. They kind of approached and said, can we come and preach at your church? And I think there was some hesitancy to letting them, especially from my dad. But this small group of people won the three pastors over and they let them in the doors of Dayspring Church. This is where this cult in Connecticut began. Around this time, it must have been 1980, John Hibbert, Gene Spademan, and one other, if not a few others, came into my family's life. From what I've gathered from being on the inside of this group from the time I was before 18 months old until the age of 34, is that there was a young pastor called John Hibbert who grew up in Rotherham in the UK. And he told me once that if he wasn't a pastor, he wanted to be a famous actor. And that always stuck with me. I thought, well, those are two very different things. But I realized later how similar those things were. So he went to pastor this church, I think, with his young family and his wife. And the story that I put together is that he was doing evangelical work. So he was going and knocking on doors and trying to get people converted to build the church. He one day knocked on the door of a woman called Jean Spademan. She had a very sordid past. Five children from three different men. She had an affair with an American. They lived in the 70s in Mansfield Woodhouse. It was pretty rough. The kids had kind of rose out of having nothing. We don't know the whole backstory because it was quite hidden. It was kind of a puzzle that you had to put together over the years. You get a little tidbit of information here or there, but it's not something you ask about outright. So the picture that formed is that she had a very sordid past. He converted her. She had this time of quote-unquote deliverance. So she had this time where she was like, for lack of better words, being possessed. She was rocking back and forth. It was like a time of darkness. She was she was spending all this time by this radiator in her house. It was about the time that one of her grandsons was being born around, he was about my age, about 
1978. And according to them, she got delivered, which means free of all her evil spirits. And John Herbert discovered that she could hear voices. They would say that she was a prophet and heard the word of God, straight from God. The role was kind of like he was the mentor, she was the tool. She also saw an opportunity, and the opportunity was money. Jean Spaden came along and presented that I have a direct contact with God, and I'm going to tell you what God says, and you have to follow it. If you don't, you will be in error, and your life will be destroyed. So my parents catered to her hand and foot, anything she wanted. She was an overweight woman with health issues. They weren't, they weren't extremely terrible in the beginning, but they were a common theme throughout the whole, quote-unquote, ministry. So her health issues, her comfort, her wishes always came first. About the age of two, two and a half, people would repeat this story to me, and I actually have a picture of the scene of me sitting in a high chair, her sitting at a table a few feet away from me and me saying to her, you are so fat. And she looked back at me and said, well, you're going to be fat too if you keep eating like that. And that's the first interaction that I remember. About a year and a half later, when I was about the age of four and my parents were off doing ministry with with Jean Spademan, her her people, we were very often left with sitters, you know, people in the church. And one of them found that the oldest boy my parents had adopted was sexually abusing me. And so she discovered him coming out of my room. She reported it to my parents. My parents then addressed the issue. And I remember the police coming taking him away and him going to jail. My father and mother were were distressed about it. And I believe that this situation piqued the interest of Jean's baby. I remember not long after Jean's baby and her people convinced my parents that because I had been sexually abused in my bedroom, that they needed to redo the whole bedroom, move the stained glass window, read wallpaper, buy me new furniture, act like they were washing away tragedy for me. Then they began to bribe me with toys to tell them about what had happened to me. I remember being so excited about going to get a My Little Pony if I told them what happened. And I remember giving my best effort to kind of accommodate whatever they were asking me. I was only just starting kindergarten, so I was just shy of five years old. And I remember I must have satisfied whatever questions they had for me, so they took me and bought me a My Little Pony. Fast forward a few years, I began to miss so much school that I was failing third grade. And the reason I was missing school was because Jean Spademan decided that she was going to start pulling me over to the UK, away from my brothers and sisters, friends. I remember being with my mother 
the first time I got called over there. The phone would ring. People would answer the phone, my mother and my father, and they would be told, Mrs. Spademan has heard that Faith needs to come over to the UK. So it began at the age of eight. What would happen was I would arrive there and then the interrogations would begin. And it started off very innocently. It started off with a seemingly kind approach. We're going to sit down and we're just going to talk. So this was at one of Gene Spademan's son's house and his wife. And they let us come in and and the interrogation began. The interrogation was about what happened to you when you were molested. You're going to tell us the details. What it turned into was you liked it. You are going to get more abused if you're not truthful about how you liked it. You're lying because you're not telling us all the details. You're going to end up ruining your life. You're going to end up in jail one day. You know, all these things. They would begin an interrogation session with the tone of we're going to help you then it turns into something so unthinkable and horrible and this went on from the age of eight to the age of 15 almost constant delirium what would happen is after being questioned and disciplined they would use the word discipline as you need correction from God. This is what Jean Spaven is hearing. And she would either convey it to someone standing next to her who was on the phone to relate it to the person standing next to you. So a game of telephone was how Jean Spaven and her team would control people. I had not known anything else. And I was a victim and I became prey for this ministry. And the prey was a tool to get my father to comply with the ministry. If his daughter was such a huge problem and they were saving me, then he would continue to fund their trips, to buy them meals, to use his business, to pay for airline tickets, to um, serve them hand and foot, for his wife, my mother, to excellently take care of them, cook for them. My parents provided for this ministry the most attention to detail type of hosting. And that was something that these people from the UK really enjoyed. They wanted my my parents' full dedication. So if they could make them feel that their children were monsters, then they would need the English ministry to help save their kids that they couldn't do anything about. So my life began to be labeled as a problem. The interrogation sessions happened most of the time at Jean Spademan's house. So her house was a factory of people doing work for free. So she had a pretty nice house, but the back of the house was like a fishbowl. 
So you would come down the lane, you'd hear the gate clang, and there would be a half a length of the house in glass windows, floor to ceiling. And then you turn the corner and the whole back of the half of the house was glass windows from floor to ceiling. So it was like this open exposed kitchen. And at that table is where most of the torturing of people like me happened. So what they would do is they would call you over when it was your turn to be interrogated, either about past abuse that had happened to you, situations that you had been involved in, whatever it was. But from my point of view as a child, it was bringing me in, sitting me down, beginning to talk to me about why they were bringing me in. And usually the reason was that I was, quote unquote, acting out. Looking back on it now, I was honestly a good kid. I like to laugh. I like to, you know, join in when people are dancing. I was a good friend. But it was always twisted that because I wasn't shy, that I was a proud, arrogant person that needed to be corralled. That we must modify her behavior so that she doesn't wreck herself. And they always connected any behavior that wasn't submissive as proud. And that pride must mean that you have sexual sin in your life. So her ministry and her accusations to me and to almost every other person that was ever questioned, persecuted, or accused was sexually charged. As a child, even up to the age of 15, I would be questioned of, do I think about these sexual things? Do I want to do these things? Do I want to get raped? All these things that I was being interrogated about, I was a child and I was a sponge. I didn't know any of these things. These were all new concepts to me. So she fed into me filth. It was dirty, awful adult-themed subjects, such as murder, bestiality, adultery, pedophilia, cannibalism, dismemberment, and on and on and on, that I honestly knew nothing about. She introduced me to many, many, many different things that she told my parents were coming from me. She would say, I'm hearing faith is doing this, or faith is thinking that, or faith wants this. And it was up to the ministry to then interpret that that was God as a reflection of their faith in the process. That if they didn't believe that was God, then they were doubting the prophet of God, which John Heber established was true. There's a hierarchy going on there's a there's a propping up of each other and it's building a web. So people like me were caught in the web and there was no way out. If I didn't confess to the things that they suggested about me, I was a liar and I was damned to hell. I, I would be threatened that God was turning his back on me and he wouldn't come back for me. I was threatened that my parents would leave me, which they did many times. 
they would leave me in the UK for six months at a time as a child with no money, nothing but a bag of clothes. And I would just be wandering around, tagging along with whatever family they left me with as I was missing school. And the theme became isolation. The tactic they would use to get you to admit to what they were accusing you of was delirium. And by that, I mean the interrogations at the table with people coming and going, you're them repeating to people, family members, friends, members of the church coming in and out, doing their duties. Mrs. Spaven would be telling them all the things she was accusing you of to shame you into admitting the things that she was accusing you of until you begged for forgiveness. And this this would go on for hours. My eyes used to be so sore and dry and my face would be covered in tears. And it was just like mental torture. And if you can imagine as a child, being isolated from normal life that every child deserves, plus being tortured in questioning sessions, blaming sessions, being yelled at, being physically beat for not answering the questions like they wanted you to, not giving her the answers about sexually charged issues, which weren't even true. If you didn't give her the answer she wanted, the interrogation would keep going. If you admitted to what they were accusing you of, then there would be a repentance session. So the repentance was you had to go and cry. You had to show physical, emotional distress about whatever it was you were being accused of, so much so that you were just begging for mercy. Then they would call you back in and they would start to be more lighthearted. They'd start to to joke. Somebody go get her some tissues. You know, here, you want some of this candy? People start to like lift the mood a little. Then once they were sure that you were really sorry, then the list of demons to exercise would come out. So whenever you admitted and repented, then you had to go through a list. The list could be anywhere from one to a hundred words. Mrs. Spaden's team would make a list of all the demons that you possess that you need to be exercised of now. And then the threat would come along with the exorcism that if you do this sin again, if you think these things, want these things, talk about these things ever again, you're going to get seven times these demons. The horror of the group is so difficult to get your head around. I remember one time when things were getting pretty intense over in the UK. I call it my bounce around trip. This was one trip where I was just last minute ripped out of my home in Connecticut, taken over to the UK with some random person from the church. It would be someone else's parent or one of the pastors who was flying over and they would just be like, take her with you. This particular time, I was brought 
to stay at someone's house. And every single day, the phone would ring. Whoever's house it was would answer the phone. We would go through a whole disciplinary session on the phone from Mrs. Spademan through one of her helpers. And they would decide that I was being a problem and needed to be moved from that house. So then somebody would come and take me from that house and move me to another house. I would be at the next house for a few days. The phone calls would would come every day, accusing me of hating the people I was staying with, of being racist, of despising people and thinking I was so much better than them. And constantly being reminded that pride comes before a fall. So apparently my fall was being moved to another house. I was probably around 12 or 13. And my dad happened to be in the UK at this time. And he was helping move me. So every time the ministry decided that I was harmful to the family I was staying with, I would then be met by my dad at the door with my suitcase packed and he would drop me off at a different house. I remember this trip wasn't as sexually charged as the other times I had been such an issue to this church and this group of people. This time it was more that I was hateful and vengeful and like a danger to people. And I remember him taking me to this old woman's house in a senior housing complex. It was very much like a convalescent home. It was sterile white hallways and like clanging metal doors. And he took me to her house and they would use her name and her place with this connotation of it being the last and the bottom of the barrel place to leave me. And I remember him dropping me off there and telling me what a disgrace I was and walking away. I remember the scene like a movie, like the hallway starts to kind of double and the sound is ringing in my ears and my dad is shrinking as he's leaving this long corridor and he's just leaving me there. And I remember feeling sadness. You know, I don't attach a lot of emotion to a lot of the things that I went through because I think I was pretty numb most of my childhood because honestly, I was just existing. You know, I wasn't thriving. I wasn't learning like I should have been. I wasn't growing in experience and happiness. I was honestly just trying to get by. And not long after this, I think it was the next trip, I got dropped off at my usual first stop, which was John Hibbert's house. And I remember him on the phone spinning in like he spun around in his office chair and looked at me and was talking to me, but was also talking to the person on the phone, talking about how awful I looked. 
And I remember him saying, what are you doing to your face? You're just, you have sores all over your face. And this was in my young teens. And this was not knowing how to properly take care of myself because I was never around my own mother. I had no personal products. I just had a bag of clothes. And when you're growing and changing, I don't know how to take care of my skin, but I also developed a compulsive picking habit, which I now know is a PTSD behavior. It was picking my lips. It was picking my skin. It was needing to get any bumps off of me. But also this feeling of, I think, maybe control, that I had no control in my life. There was nothing that I had control over. I didn't have control over what I ate, what I did all day, who I was with, what country I was in, if I was doing school or not. And picking was something that, to this day, I still struggle with. I spent the most time at his house. Mrs. Baby would call him and they would discuss with me all the things that she was hearing about me, whether they be sexual or hateful or racist. They decided that I needed to be locked in my room for 24 hours. So John Hibbert told his wife, they shut the door. And I remember coping. There were some books in the room. So I read all the books. I had an unbreakable spirit. All they were trying to do was break me. And it didn't work. I just found ways to cope with the torture they were putting me through. So I read the books. And I came out of the room 24 hours later. And I remember in that time understanding that I was having to make up lies to satisfy Mrs. Spademan's accusations to survive. One day, she actually burst my bubble. They finally did something that actually pierced my heart. And I had never, I had never been hurt so badly as the phone call I got while I was there. Remember, John Hibbert called me into his office, sat me down, and he began relaying from America. So Mrs. Spademan was at my parents' house. My parents were both there. And they relayed to me that they decided that I was too filthy and too repulsive that they were to destroy everything that I had ever owned in my entire life. And they told me that they took every object from the entire house that ever belonged to me and they put it in a bonfire, including my bed, that Kevin Hamill took it out, chopped it up, and burned it. Everything that ever belonged to me was now gone out of the house that I was born into. And I remember the heartache that wrapped my lungs 
like I remember feeling like the wind had been knocked out of me and that finally something penetrated my bubble of survival. This one was the worst thing she had done to me yet. And when I was finally allowed to go home, they told me I was coming home, quote unquote, as a guest, that I was no longer family. And when I got home, I now slept in the hallway. The hallway was used to be a room that was like a a laundry room that connected the two sides of the house. Now it had a bed in it. And while ever we had guests, they could walk through my room at any point. There was no privacy. I had nothing but the bag that I came back from the UK with, which already had almost nothing in it. And, you know, I found one thing they forgot. I found this glockenspiel that I had had at school and they forgot about it. And I never told them they forgot about it, but I still have it to this day as my one thing that survived the fire. And I think it's kind of representative of me. You know, I felt that that wind knocked me over on that one, but it didn't kill me. A lot of the disciplinary abuse that was going on towards me throughout my childhood was in the UK. And it was always in front of people. They would repeat to people what they accused you of and what was true about you and all these things. They would they would make sure that everybody knew because there was an underlying tone of this is how we're supposed to treat this person. Now you know. What you were accused of set you on the totem pole. This was also a hierarchy that you could never move places. Once they labeled you as leadership, purity, prophecy, pastor, servant, adulterer, all these things that people were accused of, they all went down the totem pole. And once you were accused of or set in a category, you never moved from there. And I was at the bottom of the totem pole. (laughs) I mean, uh, faith was, faith was trash. And I knew this, obviously, because it was reiterated constantly. I remember this one particular summer. I can only describe it as hollow, hot, with this eerie, like, tone. It's almost like my house was a ghost town. Like, I don't even know where everyone was, but I was, I was left in this big house with one woman who was assigned to be like my caretaker and one man who she was not married to. And I remember being just toted around, questioned of Was I thinking about sexual things? Why was I thinking about sexual things? The person assigned to take care of you was told the questions they were supposed to ask you on a regular basis until the phone rang and then your discipline session started. There was one of these sessions where I was sitting in my parents' dining room and Kevin Hamill was 
badgering me, badgering me, demanding answers, demanding that I admit awful, unmentionable things. And I remember him grabbing my arms and digging his fingers into my skin and shaking me to the point of sobbing and telling me I was filthy and unworthy and a liar and all these things. And I remember his physical abuse to this day, how painful it was, how aggressive and terrifying it was to be like wrenched by this pastor that's supposed to be, you know, a good person. And this led to the ministry deciding that I needed to see something die. So they decided Kevin Hamill was going to take me and go get my dog put down so that I could watch my dog die. You can imagine how horrible this was for someone who was not guilty of these things and was a child. The horror of it is overwhelming to think of even to this day. At the very last minute, they decided not to take me with the dog to go to the vet. But he still went and killed the dog and told me that it was my fault because I wanted to see death. The common theme of my childhood was, you are this, it is bad, which equals you are bad. I remember so many times in my childhood, Mrs. Spademan saying to me that I was repulsive. You know, that's a really tough way to grow up because especially when your own family is rejecting you, going along with this theme of pushing you away, isolating you, locking you away, you know, making you disappear for six months at a time. And they're not telling you, we love you. You're beautiful. We appreciate you. We're proud of you. Those things were never said. One period of my childhood, I was sent to a home down the road in Jewish City, and I was locked in the back bedroom of this house. And Goldie McFall was the person who was given care of me, and I was to stay on this mattress in the back room of the house behind a desk, and I was to stay there until Mrs. Spaven's ministry decided to deal with me. And every time my father was told to, he would show up with a piece of wood to come beat me in the back room of this house. He would beat me and then he would leave. He'd show up again with a piece of wood and it would always be hidden in his jacket. So nobody could see that he had it until he came into the room. And he would do whatever Mrs. Spaden told him to do. During the time that my mother was being disciplined by the ministry and she was pregnant with my younger brother, I became her whipping girl. So whenever my mother admitted, rightly or wrongly, to whatever she was being accused of, mainly 
things of an adulterous nature and and the discipline that they said she deserved they would then give to me and so these spankings or beatings were administered by whoever was there sometimes it was a woman but most of the time it was a man it was either kevin hamill or my father all of it was very surrounded in shame inappropriate behavior that never should have happened. 